0: We're at the Conservatives Podcast. Today we're talking about metals. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an Objects Conservative based in Cambridgeshire,
1: And I'm Chloe Romsey, an Objects Conservative based in Greater Manchester. Hey guys. Hello. I sound like I'm in a tin, by the way. I
0: apologise. No, it's for- more like a small
1: cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for my audio quality. I forgot my laptop. So we're just on my phone because of the wonders of technology.
0: Yes. Well, hey, now we're making it work. Don't be like that. (laughs) We're making it work and we're making it work. It's very
1: worthwhile.
2: And also somehow with metals conservation, as we're discussing, tin would be an ideal material that would fit into the episode, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Already topical.
0: (laughs) I'm here for it. I love it.
1: Should we get our guest host to introduce us? Yes, please. Uh, Hello, everyone. I am Lucy
2: Branch, and I am a sculptural and architectural features conservator. And although I do all sorts of metals, uh, my favourite metal happens to be bronze, but it doesn't mean that I don't have to work on lots of other things because, you know, that's the nature of the field. So I love that you have
0: a favourite metal. I mean, I knew that you did, but... I struggle to think what well, my favorite metal would be maybe gold because I don't have to do much with it.
2: <laughs> oh, but it's so dull. you know what what kind of problems are you going to get with it?
0: I mean that's the beautiful thing like it's mostly the problem with gold is it's a bit soft so not trying not to scratch it Yeah, don't <laughs> drop it
2: but like bronze does all these crazy things to people I mean I'm sure other metals would as well but I get quite a lot of people having been injured with what? it so is bronze cursed it's a really strange thing like I get quite a lot of one of the ones that we look after at Canary Wharf people hit their head on it all the time <laughs> and they have like quite bad oh cuts God. and injuries it's not one of the it's not one of the staff it's people walk into it so it's clearly like they maybe they're looking at their phone or not watching out what they're doing but then also I had a gentleman who kind of had his head split open (gasps) because uh his statue fell on him from the top of the uh shelves that it was on and sort of yeah kind of concussed him and I know that sounds like it could be like a murder plot, doesn't it? Like someone tried to kill him with his statue. How
1: is this not in the Halloween
2: episode?
0: Oh, that's so random. Probably shouldn't have laughed at people bashing their heads, but I'm just... Well, no.
1: No, I hope everyone's okay.
0: But I'm mildly entertained by the notion that maybe people aren't looking where they're going. (laughs)
2: and the thing is then they blame the metal the object as well immediately so they say (laughs) oh that shouldn't that shouldn't be there and so what can we do to sort of prevent people being injured in future is so we have to like put huge flower beds around it and things and you're like no just look where you're going (laughs) you know if if it doesn't apply to like, I don't know, a a telegraph pole or something, you wouldn't go, oh, we better put a flower bed around that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: I I love this. I mean, this must be like a, like some sort of, public piece of art I'm guessing that's
2: yes he's he's actually called if you want to go and visit him he's called uh, Man with Arms Open oh. and so and he's kind of looking up to the sky it's, it's a really inspirational sculpture I love it or maybe he looks like he's just about to give you a hug or whack you on like the that. head <laughs> um, yeah, or, or, yeah, or attack you yeah but I mean he is quite sweet and I think that it's quite a shame that all these people have like got bad associations with him because they they don't know where they're going okay so bronze slightly
0: tricky. I like it. It's out to get you. Yeah. I like it.
2: Have you ever been injured by bronze? Oh me, oh many times. But usually it's something daft. You know, as most accidents happen, it's usually something daft that you've done, isn't it? Again, I can't really blame the bronze, but <laughs> quite often I think the the hitting you, uh, the concussion part of it, especially when it's a large object, you forget where. It is. And so, you know, you do, when you're working on it, it's easy to stand up and wallop yourself or something like that. Oh yeah, but, um, totally done that. Yeah, but no, no, nothing. I haven't been poisoned or anything like that by Whoa. by a piece of bronze.
0: I feel, like, I feel like you would have to try quite hard, although I suppose
2: some of the, yeah. maybe
0: some of the corrosion products might
2: be poisonous. Yeah, I d- they're not terrible in the grand scheme of things. Obviously something like hmm. lead has yeah. more issues with corrosion. So even pre-pandemic, we obviously had to work always with masks because yeah. particularly when you're working large scale you're getting large quantities of dust and part of it will be the corrosion products that you might be thinning out uh, particularly mm. when you're working on disfiguration which you get a lot of uh, particularly on outdoor sculpture.
1: I do feel like we're on a health and safety section or we're starting with health and sef- safety as a topic aren't we? It, we sort of are now yeah. Yeah I think it's really good. Uh, what what else can we like what are metals other metals that you can be poisoned by because I'm thinking I mean are we going heavy metals probably not but I'm thinking copper kills things doesn't kill people but it it's you know not great for yeah. living things in general they put it in contraceptives and stuff mm, yeah that's
2: true yeah
1: plants yeah I don't like
2: it But bizarrely, even though it is supposed to poison sort of plant life and things like that, bizarrely, there seems still quite a lot of mossy things that grow on bronze you come across. And you would think they wouldn't, Mm. but they do. I was going to say copper tape is supposed to deter slugs. It
0: doesn't, (laughs) uh, at least not. No. At least not Welsh ones. They
2: are big and slimy and
0: they don't care yeah
2: <laughs> yeah there's quite a lot of metals in pigments that yeah uh, you get things Ooh, like yeah. antimony pigments mm. and things like that which we use quite a bit in conservation
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that's the even going towards lead white oh yeah and um the sort of lead corrosion products which obviously is quite a lot of lead sculpture mm. in the world mm. and a uh, beautiful historic lead items which bizarrely often can be coated as well so they don't look necessarily like lead until you oh that's you know, sneaky yeah you, they almost look like stone because they've been finished in such a way to imitate stone you do wonder why they didn't just
1: make it in a stone yeah yeah so what's the while we're on the health and safety topic what's the problem with lead then what with lead corrosion what's it do I've obviously written, read all of the health and safety things, but for the sake of this discussion, what's it doing? Why is it so bad compared to other things? Well, just how toxic it is,
2: and so mm. and unfortunately, the the dominant um, lead corrosion product is white, and so often it's so contrasting in shade to. The substrate that people often want to take it off. And there's only so many ways of removing corrosion mm. from features. And um, you know, the problems with things like gels and acids, which does remove corrosion, is that it also very often damages the surface at the same time because it just goes too far. And so people like ourselves who want to be incredibly careful often might work by hand and use abrasion methods, which are much easier to control if you're working by Mm -hmm. hand and very slowly. But the only problem is that, creates dust and when you inhale that you have uh, unfortunately a very toxic product in your body Of
1: course, mm, it's not so, great.
2: and and also you can get it on your hands just you know residues on your hands and you maybe lick your hand or put it in, in your you know it's very easy can you rub your eye or something yeah you know? exactly mm. rub your eye it's incredibly easy to end up absorbing it and a very little bit does You know, quite a lot of damage. So, the last time I worked on a a lead project, you know, we all looked like we were dealing with Ebola. You know, (laughs) I mean, really, we looked ridiculously as crazy, but you know, you have to be so careful. And it's just like, actually, we'd rather look really stupid than end up with Alzheimer's or or some, you know, long term health issue, which um, it might not necessarily be as acute as oh i'm poisoned the next day but actually long term it it Mm. stays in your body and it and it's nasty cumulative as well Yeah, absolutely
0: if bronze goes after you surely a much more i was gonna say deadly metal would be uh, just iron anything with iron because surely that will have crushed many a person right like things we make
2: a lot of things oh dropping on people yeah
1: (laughs) we also make a lot of weapons out of iron (laughs) like not to trivialize it but it is you know in terms of things
2: out to get you thing is that I suppose treatment wise you have perhaps less issues in the sense that you're often dealing maybe with coatings on iron rather mm. than the iron I'm, there's always going to be rust issues but with a say a bronze and often with a lead you're working directly on the substrate or the associated surface. So what I mean is a patinated surface is is actually part of the bronze itself. It's just that that top surface has been coloured a specific shade. Whereas with something like iron on an object, an architectural feature, for example, if it's been outside and if it's decorative, it tends to have paint layers. So you might not be dealing necessarily with that lower level substrate, but with the top surface so um, you know unless you are I suppose having to chop it up and you know structurally mm. deal with it which mm. none of us
1: none of us really <laughs> have the
2: appetite to do we don't want to chop, chop things up.
1: Yeah. Other than for testing I know that they do a lot of um, that sort of testing based stuff in uh, Cardiff university for their masters and
2: stuff. But I do sometimes have clients who say things like, you know, what's wrong with this object? And basically the armature, which very often was made in iron, um, Mm. you know, sort of earlier objects, and they have collapsed because maybe they've had Mm. water funneling inside them for a long time. And the iron inside has collapsed. And so the structural part of the object is no longer there. And they're saying to me, well, what can you do with it? And my answer is, well, actually, the only thing we can do if you t- is to open the object up and insert right. a new armature, obviously take out the yeah. but I mean that sound, I mean it is horribly interventive. But then they kind of say, Well, you know, isn't there another way of doing that? And I think, well, short of a magic wand, no, there really isn't, because you know, if you're having to get inside an object, the only way of dealing with it is a horribly interventive way, which is Opening it up. It's kind of ingrained in us not to do that kind of thing, but sometimes it's just absolutely the only thing that can be done. Oh, that's some
0: Wolverine level stuff. That's insane. I love it.
1: (laughs) That specific problem of metal being used as a, a significant primary component to an object, you wouldn't need to take apart a doll with a metal armature in order to conserve it. You would potentially look at the mounting of the object. But that's because all the pieces yeah. around it are so much lighter, whereas a sculpture with a metal armature, it can't hold itself up if it's not
2: conserved. Exactly. You know, dealing with outdoor objects and indoor objects are wholly different fields in many ways. Mm. I always try and differentiate what I do from work internally because you know you do look entirely differently at how mm. to support something if it's in quite a cloistered environment I have to look at objects and think how if someone climbs that what <laughs> are they going to do yeah yeah and, yeah you know it, with a doll in a in a case hopefully if it's a precious thing no one's going to climb it right
1: no. I, I would hope no. so yeah. <laughs>
2: <They're not.
0: laughs> it's a very different consideration <laughs>
2: Yeah. And unfortunately, things just don't that we don't have many options mounting wise externally, you know, apart from the traditional ways of mounting things. Mm. And generally when there has what I've seen anyway is when there has been efforts to sort of go in that direction, unforeseen issues come up like um, they end up housing something maybe with a sort of plastic type supports and then they don't realize that actually they've created a microclimate around the object which has accelerated the corrosion which basically means that although they have structurally supported it they've ended up ruining what was the quite you know patina that was in quite nice condition previously Mm. so then I've kind of been brought in and they say well you know what can we do we thought we were doing a good thing but actually what they've done is taken kind of museum conservation outdoors and it doesn't necessarily uh. translate
0: oh uh, yeah so oh, that's interesting yeah it's, it's quite fun to think about because I, <laughs> I had a go at thinking of different types of let's say metal objects and the list goes thusly archaeological utilitarian outdoors, huge bastards and fancy. <laughs> but those are my broad categories. And and Lucy,
2: you deal with outdoors and huge
0: bastards, yeah. sort of. I think I'm the,
2: like, the only person in the world that loves like super narrow niches. Like I, I like <laughs> also objects that can't be moved. Like I like Ooh. those oh. objects. One of the reasons I like bronze is obviously there's, there's so many beautiful things made in bronze, but the, they put them in all sorts of locations sculpture particularly and architectural features and I really like coming to an object and thinking okay how do I treat this here not, mm-hmm. you know, not, you know, I would have been bored years ago if I um was just sort of dealing with objects in one location because, you know, there's quite maybe a, a relatively few number of treatments you can do. But having been, you know, working in this field forever and ever and ever, every single time I come to a new location, I have to adapt the treatment somehow because it just isn't suitable in that location
1: and so it keeps it much more interesting (laughs) i think (laughs) so is that treatment for as in the work that you can physically carry out in a space or is it treatment for what the object requires for that space
2: often I'm more dealing with, is it a preventive treatment or is it something like a restoration treatment? Mm -hmm. And um, that's generally what dictates, you know, what's necessary to do. But for example, it might be absolutely seem like the right thing to do to maybe use a protective coating like Incralac on an object because it can really work well. But if that object is low down, it's completely ruled out because the amount of kicking touching splashing scratching uh. that will take place on an incolac surface will mean that it will look dreadful in no uh. time but put that same object, you know, above two meters and you may get 20 years at least of lifespan out of it. So it's the physical contact with the coating mm. that determines whether it's, it's actually applicable in that scenario. It doesn't mean that that treatment isn't fabulous in some scenarios, but it just is awful in others. Mm. I quite like the problem solving of it. Like, how do I do this on the top of a roof? You know, <laughs> it, you know, it, oh it's God. difficult because loads, you know, say you think, oh, well, it's really easy. You've got like pressurized, I don't know, you'd be thinking of something like um, a wet abrasion system, which works brilliantly, maybe f- on the floor and will only take you, you know, a day of work to do, but take that hundreds of feet up in the air and you've got no pressure because you can't get, (laughs) you know, anything to get that pressure up Mm. there. So, you know, then you start, you know, looking much more at traditional hand hundreds of year old techniques.
0: Oh, that is fascinating. It's a good point. I sort of hadn't considered that you sometimes work at considerable height. <laughs> oh yeah.
2: I mean I've I've worked on things that move as well. I know I know this is not a dynamic no. object topic, but like we did work on one which was a sort of wand that basically moved back and forwards and every time uh, that you couldn't hold it still because if you did if the wind hit it in a certain way it would snap What they, the engineers said yeah so basically we had to wait for the trip for the wand to waft past us and just you know spray down with it as it went past and then you know wait another 10 minutes until it came back again <laughs> it it did only have a, a particular trajectory so we could plan that we wouldn't be hit by it
0: okay but, that's something um, yeah That
1: is crazy. I love that. (laughs) So when you said big buses, Jenny, I thought you meant like SS Great Britain or something. But actually, we're talking about things that are swinging, like literally swinging. Not only can you not move them, but you cannot prevent them to move, (laughs) stop them moving.
0: I mean, I think in my mind when I said that, I think I I meant, yeah, like... Yeah, like a piece of a bridge, or yeah. I don't know, a giant piece of industrial equipment that cannot be moved. Like something to do with mining that's outside mm. forever because yeah, that's yeah, where yeah, it's built. Yeah. You know, I I sort of considered that to be a, under the category of big bastards. I'm sorry, everyone who loves those things. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I I also love and appreciate those things, but they are still huge. <laughs> they are vast. Yeah so yeah I I was just thinking of that as a category of like really really big things that are just immense like bigger than I want to
1: think about I mean yeah (laughs) yeah well a lot of our work with those ones if we're in a museum setting and there's say a museum sculpture or something outside it I feel like at the moment a lot of the dealings that we've you know people listening to this might have with that sort of thing is you know maintaining the coating so it's been there for 30 years or something just guessing oh yeah and so now it's you know you're just looking at the coating going oh god that needs to be redone or when is it going to need to be redone or something yeah if you're a conservator and you're overseeing say an installation of a large metal sculpture outside your museum well how long would you have (laughs) before you have to start thinking of a conservation coating
2: right okay so this is the Million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're t- are we talking about traditional sculpture here? Maybe a traditional bronze feature uh, outside of a museum? Yes. Something like that. Really, you need to be thinking about a traditional wax-based coating mostly, I would say. Mm. And the reason I say that is because if you are trying to treat something that is... Um, outdoors with a coating that will last a lot longer so say you might be thinking about something like Incralac if you're thinking about something that you're wanting to get longevity out of the problem is that spraying something like that in situ base is a complete nightmare because of all the dust that's in the air Mm. and because of Mm. the you know terrible uh, weather that vary every day in the UK and so to get a really sound coating that has to be done internally Uh, and so something like that. If it's a historic feature, I would say a wax coating is your best option. Now waxes, the research shows that they don't last that long, frankly. And I think the most that you see wax is really lasting for is about a year and oh, oh wow so the thing is that and that's not even it might only, it might be less than that so basically what happens is you get a prevailing wind and in that direction the wax oh. fails much quicker than it did on the other yeah. side which is quite sheltered so the problem is that yes it seems like oh my goodness a year we're going to have to retreat that that's dreadful but the difference is with something like a wax coating which is a traditional coating for sculpture is that it's super easy to apply and quite quick so mm. you can quite quickly clean down a surface make sure there's no dirt and grime and reapply the coating and so in terms of expense it's not that much now mm. you get something like uh, an incralat coating which has got some very good qualities to it And the the reasons that we use Incralac on something like Sculpture is because it's so much more easy to reverse than the traditionally much harder lacquers. So, Mm. uh, you know, you, you don't want to be really attacking your surface to get a coating off. And you don't want to be using vats and vats of really yucky solvents to get a coating off. And that's what you have to do with some of the harder coatings. So Incralac is a great product, but the problem is once it goes goes my goodness it goes and some and so it's expensive to take off if it fails Mm. and so Uh. you've got a risk factor there that what happens with lacquer is very often you get something like guano hit it and you get a little 10 pence piece that suddenly fails and then it fails from that point outwards. It's a bit like a a glass that's shattered or a mirror that's shattered. It starts to move down the sculpture and suddenly it looks super bad. And and then you have this really big bill to put it right. And so, you know, that might not happen, but it is a substantial risk when you've got birds all over the Mm. place
0: yeah and so
2: then it's it it might seem my goodness, a year having to treat this object every mm. year is a terrible expense, but actually it will generally speaking keep it looking good, and although we can never put something like a traditional bronze in stasis outdoors, we because of the environment, we definitely can slow its degradation down quite significantly. Mm. And so it kind of it's a tried and tested method, but it really works. And some of the more longer life coatings just
1: cause as many problems as they solve. Do you just reapply the coatings then? If you're if you've got a BTA, do you have to remove it all and then reapply a fresh one? yeah you have
2: to remove the entire coating because it is a lacquer coating mm. uh, you you know the problem is you can think to yourself oh well I will just you know cut down that little area and yeah. reapply it but <laughs> what happens it is it, it ends up looking like a patchwork quilt yeah. and you start see, you know you get down you think oh I've done that's really nice and like two weeks later you're like there's another patch
1: so if we move inside a space now mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of The logical next step, because first we're talking about environments that are completely uncontrollable, and that's the joy of them. You can also entirely control an environment, and I'm thinking at the moment. I'm thinking of the example of the SS Great Britain with the with the vents and stuff. Oh my god, yeah,
0: yeah. Maritime material Mm. is always going to have an extra hard time with all that (laughs) stuff. So (laughs) that's
2: that's,
0: (laughs) you know. Bonus points for uh, difficulty. Um. Yeah. all right
2: yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. the thing is that the thing is with metals is it sounds so simple to stop them changing and and corroding. Mm. Basically,
1: yeah.
2: don't have any water and and take out the oxygen. Ideally, have nothing at yeah. all super easy that's fine when I say that to be, I said well you know if basically if you don't have any moisture at all you know it's fine but it's really hard to do <laughs> it's sort of you know almost impossible even in indoors it's really hard people don't realize how much fluctuation in our age there yeah. is yeah oh absolutely. yeah and again inside people think oh well it's really clean it's so not it's really <laughs> dirty inside <laughs> as well and these contaminants you know they are the sources of sort of they are the things that are reacting with the metal surfaces and the more decorative or more reactive metals are going to really change even in even interior if they have fluctuating rh so if anyone out there which i would
0: assume is quite a few of you have silver jewelry and it's just been out on a i don't know a counter or a table or like you have it hanging out in, in maybe in your bedroom or i don't know something i'm looking at some now that's enough air exposure that it tarnishes that's just it sitting there yeah. that and that's in your house that's like a domestic setting you know it's crazy to think how easily things do actually tarnish or or, or corrode i'm sort of enjoying that corrosion is really just how metals react to anything at all
2: yeah I, <laughs> I mean, I'm quite often asked these days, uh, sort of fine coatings, you know, that cure and don't have any off gassing, prevent the off gassing of the material below them, because maybe they're in contact with bronze.
1: Ah, that's interesting. The the
2: reality is that re- the polymer sector is, you know, huge. There's still very few things that actually are really good at doing that I mean very few if we we're going to invest our money somewhere I reckon that's a field for the future because <laughs> you know it's just under it's underdeveloped and it's so needed it could definitely help museum conservation I think yeah
0: all right big spenders you know what to do <laughs>
1: yeah
0: <laughs> but thinking about treatments I like that we've talked about coating things because that's usually a big yeah. one I suppose other things that we can do is ways of cleaning things, which will vary wildly between metals. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and obviously what
1: you're trying to clean off.
2: I mean, the term cleaning for metals, I think, is a real red herring as well. Because, hmm. you know, very often people say, oh, can you come and clean this? And I think to myself, well, you can clean off the dirt or the guano, but you can't clean off the corrosion corrosion is no. it's a reaction that stems from the substrate and also many of those metals will have an intended finish and so the idea of cleaning it off means you are destroying whatever originally was there in the first place or evidence mm. of anything that was originally there and and also it's but somehow it suggests it's a really easy thing to do cleaning I'm <laughs> just going yeah. to clean that and it will all be fine and <laughs> Actually, removing corrosion is incredibly difficult and you have Mm. to really think carefully about whether you should be doing it, why, how you're going to do it, you know, whether actually you know enough about the object. Because the thing with metals is often they've changed so much, there is no reference point of what they should have looked like. And so, you know, are you making an assumption that this is what that object looked like and therefore cleaning the corrosion off and maybe recoloring, repatternating the surface. Or, and that's where I think, particularly in the older days, there was an awful lot of mistakes made with objects. And we're looking mm. at metal surfaces now and assuming that might have been the original. And it it mm. really wasn't. It's someone's interpretation of what they thought it was. And they didn't check. But I think that's happened in all sorts of fields of conservation and restoration. But I think very often done with bronzes because people go, oh, we need it cleaning. You know, that makes me think
0: of couple of articles I saw ages ago now but basically where people were like why are these you know beautiful ironwork railings such garish colours <laughs> and it's like well those were actually the original colours we've we know that because we have evidence for yeah. it and we've actually brought it back to that you think they, they should be black because that's how they are in your head yeah. or you've seen a lot of black railings but actually that isn't at all the original colour scheme of this street at all for example and I just think that sort of stuff is super interesting Interesting, that it's a lot about public perception sometimes and people thinking it should be a certain way when actually that might not be what the evidence says
2: yeah and also you know our taste in the era we're living in is not necessarily the same taste that was a hundred years ago or you know 200 years ago and so to yeah. us it looks garish but doesn't mean that that's the the opinion of those who made it and and what society sort of thought of it at that time and for custodians they find it very hard to think like that you know they're, they're often quite saying "Well, oh, I don't know if we should do that I don't know if we should do that and I'm thinking well maybe not but this is not authentic either whatever you're doing mm.
1: it's not going to be authentic yeah so with corrosion removal what and I'm thinking in all scenarios so museums outdoors you know utilitarian objects everything there's corrosion that we've talked about that one should keep in place that forms a protective coating but also corrosion that is damaging and highly acidic which ones should we remove and which ones should we keep in place um
2: (laughs) so (laughs) <laughs> On something like a bronze, there is no such thing as uh, a completely protective co- uh, corrosion product. Uh, mm-hmm. You have moisture and pollutants can still sink through the corrosion mm-hmm. layers and continue to corrode the surface. Mm-hmm. So you can get many layers of corrosion and they sort of sandwich the surface so that less moisture gets in and pollutants but and that slows the rate of activity down but it doesn't it isn't like a passivating layer like Mm. if you think about aluminium
1: oxide I was thinking of aluminium yeah yeah exactly Mm. that
2: is a um that is a different thing uh, a different animal Then you've got the fact that some corrosion products are active rather than passive. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about active corrosion, that's where you're seeing rapid change. And usually that comes from a place of something like chlorides so we were talking about you know marine environments but there's plenty of environments Mm. where chlorides pop up Um, and even with bronzes they are intentionally patinated with chlorides but when those chlorides age and start to react with their environments they become active and so you can actually get sort of active corrosion, pitting and things like that, that is happening from kind of the inside out.
1: Oh my god, It's never good. No, that doesn't
2: sound good. <laughs> but also you have to be really careful with lots of metals, but particularly bronzes, that you are understanding what you are seeing because that term corrosion, uh, another word for it would be patina. Mm. But there are different types. There's the original patina, which means the intended patina, But there's also the naturally occurring patina, which tends to be what happens with a a bronze, particularly as it has reacted with its environment. So essentially, naturally occurring patina is corrosion, but it tends to be the type of word that's used when people like the way it looks. So corrosion starts getting thrown around when people notice that it's actually quite ugly. They say, oh, there's corrosion (laughs) disfiguring my statue. But yeah. Actually, if you took it back two years, they really liked the surface, but it wasn't what the original surface looked like. It had just matured and they liked the way it had matured. So it's a kind of mm. language aspect and you have to make sure that you're not sort of identifying the naturally occurring patterner as necessarily being the original patterner. And, yeah. you know, it's not so much that you don't value both. It's just that you have to make sure you know what people know what they're looking at
0: hmm interesting i i once got in trouble i'm sure i've said this before I'm, i once got in trouble for emailing myself some photos of <laughs> of some bronze corrosion oh yes! because yeah i think i have mentioned yeah. this before but but essentially the statue was of a naked man and let's just say that the email filters didn't really like me emailing my work account um some pictures of a naked man even though it was obviously not <laughs> 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 um uh, a uh, let's say Real naked man. Mm. I mean, um, uh, but also he had very specific corrosion problems. As in, it was all centered around his private parts. That's that's quite something. I mean, it was a very fun condition report to write. I have to say, <laughs> and also a really fun email
2: to write to IT. <laughs> Do you know it's really, really common that active corrosion happens in the nether regions? I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> call them the nether regions. It's really, <laughs> really common. So you see a lot of horses on plinths oh my goodness, 99% of the time, all the active corrosion is round their areas. Outrageous. I did um, Freud, and um, you can imagine Freud right outside. And The the amount of time I spent with my head in his groin. It was just unbelievable. (laughs) And I had so many social media photos taken of that. And I'm sure I'm all over the internet looking extremely uh, dodgy is the word. (laughs)
0: That is amazing
2: but um, I think it's to do with the way that the air flows over the region i um it's active <laughs> corrosion is particularly worse with certain types of air currents that and the way the water oh. runs you know they tend to have lots of shapely sculpting in those areas, and the water tends to sort of hang around in that region more because it's it and not evaporate so quickly
1: yeah so and, the,
2: and because it's maybe a little bit more protected you know the way that the body is around it mm-hmm. I think it stays damp longer and you get some quite mm. m- minimal air current and I think that that it makes it worse and it's very <laughs> common
0: I didn't think that we would be talking about sculptures having VDs, but yeah. here we are.
2: Um, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, and lots of sort of, you know, having to do sort of assessments in <laughs> very dodgy areas of the
0: <laughs> position. Amazing. Yeah. Because this was an indoor sculpture. So initially, like my thought was,
2: is it just that people have touched it there? Yeah, like, that's what I assume. Yeah, very often it's the sculpture.
1: groping the statue.
2: Yeah exactly very often I mean indoors nearly always it's it's sweat from the hands
1: it's lovely <laughs> humans are so lovely I love that people <laughs> don't think that no anyone will notice they like, say I'm gonna just I'm just no one's looking I'm just gonna I'm just gonna touch it and then over time always evidence
2: we know what you did yeah we probably can't pick up the fingerprint
0: <laughs> except on some surfaces where we definitely can yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, the evidence is etched in place. Indeed.
0: (laughs) Anyway, that was my anecdote of uh, naughty corrosion products. (laughs) I apologize for uh, lowering the tone, everyone.
1: The other
2: source of chlorides with bronzes is very often the core. So you get in lots of historic castings, even in contemporary castings, you get all sorts of grog and rubbish inside the core. And although when they're casting, they're supposed to rod out all of the areas, the areas that are sort of uh, difficult to get at, so things like elbows, I imagine the nether regions are hard to get at um, <laughs> and you know sort of awkwardly shaped bits it's yeah. really hard to get that internal casting um, material out because I mean you can imagine how do you you yeah. know once it's actually there you haven't got a big hole to jet bl- like to blast out you can blast anything off the surface but you can't blast it out from the inside yeah. and so what often happens is you get these tiny casting floors and then the The chlorides, which, because I mean, plaster very often used in casting and ceramics bits and depends what type, how old the casting was, but particularly something like plaster and things, you know, you get all sorts of chloride and kind of contaminants mixed in there and then they leach, a little bit of it leaches out through the tiny casting holes and starts up active corrosion. Ah. And so that's also a possibility.
0: Oh, I quite like that. That's a clue to how it was made as well. That's so fun.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the thing is that I've seen it on contemporary sculpture as I mean, it it can be really aggressive. So it can actually cause a huge hole in the sculpture and it eats its way out. And suddenly you see this, I mean, violent act of corrosion on the outside. And you think, how on earth has that happened? And it's actually burned a hole in the surface of the bronze and literally eaten its way out like an alien
0: Wow, that is extremely <laughs> unpleasant. I, know. I love it.
2: I know, I know. I mean, it's it's just such a cool metal. I mean, you know, you're not gonna get, the, the reason that I I don't quite as much about other metals is because they're not, they don't have as many problems. They're
1: more well behaved. They are
2: more well behaved.
1: <laughs> I think we should do this as metals part one and have this as large and out and outdoor metals. Yeah.
0: Out of curiosity, and this is something that, because I I don't work with like huge, huge metals. Do you ever have to reshape anything or anything like that in your line of work?
2: Give me a bit more context. Do you mean reshape it because of damage or do you mean? I was thinking damage. Yeah, so basically, we've had a few statues that have been run over. So oh my gosh, people, what? Yeah, by what? Like a tank? <laughs> I think it was. Can't remember the artist, but very famous. It was something very significant had been stolen, and then as they were, oh yes, I remember this, leaving, yes. and they were you know zooming across uh, the embankment. I think it was they dropped it, and <sighs> an artic- and an articulated <sighs> lorry ran over it. So um, it came in like a pancake.
1: Oh and you', like, oh, wow. there are
2: moments where you think, is this worth conserving? Like maybe it's just like wow. we should recast one from one of the other existing pieces. But my, it, when my father was still alive when uh, that happened and he was an absolute genius. And he just incredibly patiently sort of teased it back out inch by inch. And I mean, it was incredible to watch. So you can, I mean, not so much, we we don't really do so much of sort of pairing back, but sort of reshaping. Yeah, and... That's more like, you know, a sculpture, but we get quite a lot of asked quite a lot about people reversing into doors. Uh, yeah. So that makes beautiful sense. historic doors and somebody reverses a lorry and they end up mm. with a big dent. Oh, yeah. The problem is that, that with cast bronze, particularly, it's incredibly brittle. So you can't just get your mallet and whack it out because if you do that the chances are you will split it and it doesn't sound like you think how on earth what do you mean but it cast bronze is uh it's a crystalline structure
0: yeah I was gonna say Mm -hmm.
2: you you really can I've seen people whack it and then it end up just in two pieces so I mean it's about incredible you know patience Can you apply heat and stuff? You can apply heat, yes. First of all, you have to decide whether you're going to necessarily sacrifice the patina as well. Uh, And if the patina is really beautiful, and you really torch up the heat, you will seriously disfigure it. And so it's a kind of a balance between getting the metal a little bit more malleable, a little bit. With cast, it doesn't go malleable the way it does with sheet metal. But basically and also that thing of sort of not damaging what you've got there already which is in you know it may have been run over but the pattern may be beautiful still (laughs) so yeah you know it's really hard whenever things like that come up I kind of you know take a deep breath and think oh and you know my heart sinks a little bit because there isn't much you can do oh I know
0: (laughs) I mean, ultimately, that's the case with any type of conservation. Sometimes the patient is just dead and yeah. you, 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 you've got to say there's nothing we can do here, which yeah. is sad and thankfully it doesn't happen that often. But sometimes we, we we just got to call it.
1: So what about large metal objects that have multiple different types of metal oh God. within them? The thing that jumped into my mind was the linotype Ooh. machines okay, type casting machines.
0: I haven't spent any time thinking about what they might be made up of, but it makes sense that it's more than one metal. Yeah, I
2: haven't worked on anything of that ilk. But um, the big problems that I come across is bimetallic corrosion. So lots of um, galvanic corrosion, essentially, which is different types of metals against mm. each other's surface, add in a bit of moisture, and you get a huge activity, you know, from one of the metals. And that Those corrosion products that can form through that end up then disfiguring like the surface of the rest of the object Mm. and also structurally can affect the object because it weakens Uh, when you get so much corrosion it weakens the structure of the of the metal and Mm. so I can imagine that the kind of machines you're
1: referring to might have similar issues. To be honest the machines that I've worked with that are the like giant liner time machines okay. I didn't see any corrosion on them but I just thought huh I bet that's a nightmare it's it's more the sort of huge complexity of those and, and if you're saying that you know any of those if each interface has the potential yeah. to be a huge problem just by changing the environmental conditions yes. that's, that's crazy I'd be really interested to hear if anyone has been responsible for something like this I mean, you would hope that
2: whoever made it did know enough about the materials that they were using to try to minimise... Because otherwise they wouldn't sell many machines, would they? Because machines yeah, need a machines need Good a point. lot of maintenance. Point. They, you know, if they're if they're working things, yeah, mm. they
0: they will be quite hardy in a way. Much like uh, I suppose um, I'm, I'm thinking of stuff that might be at the science museum. You know, like you know, yeah. aircraft and uh, space shuttles and stuff. The, yeah. Those have been really stress tested materials that will have their own problems, but they, they will be very different from, say, the problems that we might find it more in an art sector.
1: That's true. Yeah. You don't tend to get sort of new, very many new type machines. You? They're usually like, oh, yeah, I've been using this technology for 30 years.
0: I mean, there might be experiments with, you know, like a new alloy or a slightly different uh, ratio in an alloy or even batch differences, you know, from depending on how these things are made. And it's more that I think in art, you're a lot more experimental, I would, I, I dare say. And and mm-hmm. even yeah. if something, you know, as tried and tested as, hey bronze has been around for a while guys that, that there will still be um, you know <laughs> big differences between different studios or uh, you know different artists working with, mm-hmm. with different types of um, you know casting and all sorts of things so i feel like there's definitely scope there for there to be m- not more problems because that sounds really negative but
2: more interesting issues yeah <laughs> i mean the thing is though that you know bronze isn't one thing it's a generic term for a copper alloy and there are zillions of copper alloys yeah and i mean even talking to- talking about new alloys that even with I getting a lot at the moment of aluminium bronze everywhere it's a oh. real buzz buzzword everyone loves oh. aluminium bronze and oh. it sounds why what why is it good so <laughs> or bad they say oh aluminium bronze it doesn't corrode mm, doubt well let me oh. tell you what they've done is when they've done their research and testing they've done things like you know they've used it on like oil rigs where it doesn't corrode oh in to the extent that oh you know it isn't gonna cause a structural failure in terms of its corrosion. Yeah. Let me tell you there's copper in it. And so in terms of aesthetic It's just as unstable Mm. as most other bronzes. It reacts to the copper in it, reacts to its environment. And so I had a particularly sad situation where, you know, an artist nearly on their knees weeping because their statue is completely unstable in in the finish that they wanted, which was quite an unstable finish anyway. But still, they've been told and they had done huge amounts of research and they had been told it doesn't corrode. It's just, it means something different yeah. in like on an oil rig mm, in a marine yeah. environment than it does in an urban space when you're trying to keep a colour that is very, yeah. very specific. Um, And like, so like, as you say, an art context is wholly different from, you know, an engineering context.
0: Yeah, that's oh, it's interesting. And I mean, again, we're sort of back to aesthetics, really, which is a big thing with metals really yeah it's a dilemma with metals of all shapes and sizes, really, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, and I mean, you are in a situation. I, I think maybe that's mostly important in a contemporary bronze context, and also mm. with memorial objects, where yeah, they have to reflect. You know, I've just had Remembrance Day. They have to reflect the care that the community has for yeah. that object. They mm. don't want to see it yeah. looking like it's never been done uh, and never looked after and cared for, but. One of the things I think probably just to mention before we leave off is just, you know, why there are not a more diverse range of metal sculptures and architectural features, why bronze dominates so much. Because although we have obviously um, large steel, what is seen more now than it used to be and things like that, the reason that bronze does so well and has been used historically so much is because of these beautiful finishes that it can achieve and how generally speaking well it does the reason that iron doesn't do very well outside is because it has to have its coating in place perfect all the time otherwise obviously there's a level of mm-hmm. degradation lead you know unfortunately uh you know we know the the hazards of lead and and so you know there aren't that many types of metal that are suitable for large-scale art or large-scale architectural features that can give a decorative finish. That's why we love bronze.
0: And as you may have noticed, that became part one of Metals. So if you would like to co-host an episode about Metals part two, smaller metals, maybe indoor metals, or ones you find in the ground then you are very welcome uh, to express your interest. And we look forward to hearing from you.
3: Dear Jane, I have tattoos, blue hair and dress quirky. This is a way of showing my real self, but it can be confronting at times. How can I be my authentic self within the sector while still being able to gain employment in a mostly conservative, male-driven environment. Signed, K. Dear K, thank you for your question. And what an interesting question this one is. And what a dilemma you present. It's interesting that when Jenny sent, looked at the emails, she said, that, well, we definitely need more people with blue hair in the sector. So I think the first thing I would address was your last point was a conservative, male-driven environment. I'm not sure that all of conservation is a conservative, male-driven environment. In fact, I think I'd go as far as to disagree that that's the case. I think there are parts of the heritage sector that are conservative and male-driven, particular museums and classes of museums. But I would say that, in my experience, conservation has been a relatively broad church and pretty open. I can't say that that um, that that will hold true for everyone in every presentation, but I would say feel a little bit more confident of, of your sector and feel a little bit more confident that we're prepared to accept difference. Now, our sector is meant to to serve the whole of community, the whole of society. And it doesn't. It's well documented and well discussed on the SeaWorld that it's far too white and middle class and cardigan wearing and, you know, nice and a little bit quiet and a little bit behind the scenes. Those things are absolutely fine for someone to be, but that doesn't have to be the single existence. So I think that for you to find a job and keep a job you have to present in that job as your authentic you. I think the people spot and are very attuned to people being inauthentic. So I would say that you have to look for a job or a role where you can present as you wish. Does that mean I would wear a backless dress so that they could see every tattoo or what? I don't know where your tattoos are. But yeah, you know what I mean? At the job interview, probably not. I'd still wear job interview kind of clothes, you know, the kind of clothes that other people wear. That's what I would do. Because in my experience, people judge you very quickly. And what you want to do is give them a chance to hear who you are and what you have to say and what you have to offer. So it would be nice if they hadn't already gone off you by the time you came through the door. And that's what I made my decision when I was a lot younger to, you know, cut the mop of purple hair and go for the brown bob when I was job hunting. Now, does that mean it was right? I don't think my experience is in any way necessarily right. It's just what I did. And I think that's the compromise I was prepared to make because, you know, I had to had to pay the that <laughs> to get a job. Um, and I thought that that was needed. Time has moved on from then, but I think there is still a pressure to do it. So I think you should look for a role where you can be your authentic self. I truly hope that, that can be within the cultural heritage sector. I think that that might involve you being more broad in what jobs you look for. I'm not quite sure what conservation jobs you are looking for. But you should be able to find somewhere. And I think that the sector is trying to present themselves as more diverse, as more inclusive, as speaking to more people in society. So I think that on balance, the majority of places would welcome you. I am making the assumption that you are in the UK or looking for jobs in the UK here. I don't know enough about the rest of the world for which I apologize. I think that is still holds true in other places. Although some European countries, you, what you will find is it's more about a career path that you get the right qualifications and you apply for the job and it's very much more an on paper exercise. So if you are in those situations, then I imagine you get a lot further just by showing your paper qualifications. So would I tone it down a bit for an interview? If I'm honest, I have and I did what I recommend that you did. I think you've got to stay within the boundaries of what you feel comfortable with. I'd probably suggest that you go at the, um, the more toned down end of your boundaries, but I wouldn't go further below that because if you get a job and you're not you, you won't be happy in that job. If you find the sector can't tolerate you, which absolutely breaks my heart to think of, then maybe we don't deserve you. So I think I'm plumping. I'd love to hear what other people think. I would plumping for stick to within the boundaries of what you feel comfortable with, but possibly on first presentation, go in at the, uh, the, the easier to digest version. The last thing I just want to pick up on is this idea of your um, appearance being conf- confronting. I just want to challenge that as a concept. Not that you're not reporting, because obviously if you say that your appearance is confronting, people have felt confronted. But in the end of the day, you have every right to be who you are and present however the heck you like and if someone feels confronted by that it really is on them so it's not you being confronting it is them being confronted it's them choosing to be upset by how you present I do feel that there's a distinction and perhaps that might help so that if you think of yourself as being whoever it is you you want to be and that that person feels confronted then I guess the question is do you want to work for or with someone who chooses to see your hair colour rather than your skill set. I think it would be a very frustrating and short term work relationship if you know, they thought that you couldn't do conservation because you dyed your hair. So there we have it. That's my answer. I think this has been one of the most interesting and challenging questions I've ever had. And I'd love to hear what the rest of the listeners say. I um, hope that helps. Over and out.
0: Today I'm reviewing Modern Metals in Cultural Heritage, Understanding and Characterization by Virginia Costa. This is a Getty Conservation Institute publication from 2019. This book aims to fill a noticeable void in the conservators' bookshelf. Very few publications deal with what we might call modern metals, so the 20th century alloys that we now find in our collections. This publication talks the reader through some of the hurdles of identifying those materials. Part 1 is a crash course in metallurgy, and offers insights into the nature of metals, their overall properties, and how to tell them apart. The diagrams and tables here are very helpful, but the phase diagrams are scary as hell. We get to acquaint ourselves with the concepts of alloys, and how their structure differs from pure metals, how they're tested industrially, and how their corrosion works on a chemical level. The chapter on characterization is especially helpful to me as a general objects conservator, as I'm often left with only one option, visual inspection. Often this is lacking in literature on metals conservation, and I found this section super helpful. Of course, the chapter also covers analytical methods, but those are usually well beyond my reach, so this part is less helpful to me as a freelancer, or a small-time conservator, if you will. In part two, we dive into different alloys more specifically. Aluminium alloys, copper alloys, stainless steel titanium alloys, weathering steels, and alloys containing zinc. I liked a bit about likely applications and examples of what corrosion and degradation looks like for these different alloy types. To me, it's endlessly useful to know that a certain type of alloy might be more likely to be used in a certain type of industry, for example, as this helps narrow down my options when an object in front of me is simply labeled metal. I especially like that each chapter ends with a paragraph or two about the available conservation literature, though this is often disappointingly short. That's not Virginia's fault, of course. It just means there isn't much conservation research or many case studies to draw on. And it's in fact just a sign that we need to share more knowledge if we've got it. Some of the allowed chapters are distressingly short, but again, this is due to the available data. Each chapter is very well researched, in fact, and comes with its own little bibliography. Part three is all about applied surface coatings and talks us through plating processes, hot dipping and conversion coatings. It's not a very long section of the book, but it gives you an idea what sort of surface coating may have been applied to the object you're working on at the point of manufacture, and some ideas are a lot better than no idea. I like the reference tables and images of corrosion products in this book. They're not too scary and are easy to take in at a glance. The text itself is science-dense, and many parts can be intimidating if you're not a hardcore science fan. But it's definitely a useful book. The font choice is weirdly challenging, so funnily enough, most of my complaints are on the actual visual format of the book, not the quality of the content. That's actually top-notch, if it'd be heavy at times. No pun intended. Overall, definitely one to grab if you're likely to work on modern-ish materials. This book costs $60 straight from the Getty website, or around 30 to 40 pounds on Amazon here in the UK. It has 136 pages with color images throughout. If you're enjoying the C word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as one dollar per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. Well it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the CWord and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C-word, and you've been listening to Lucy Branch, Chloe Romsey, and me, Jenna Matthiason. Join us next time for an episode about rationalization and disposals. In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi music, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
2: And we don't have blood on our hands, I suppose, but (laughs) Also dramatic, I love it.
1: (laughs) Um,
0: We don't have corrosion products on our hands.